So I'm going to admit something here. When I heard the phrase self-managed abortion, I pictured someone with a wire coat hanger bleeding out in a back alley. I don't think you're alone in that, though. I mean, think about what we were taught about abortions or not taught about abortions in school, in life, through the media. And I think about all the people who say they've had an abortion in public and are absolutely roasted. Like the stigma around abortion, even though the statistics say we probably all know people who've had abortions, nobody talks about it. It's even less talked about than miscarriage, for sure, anecdotally. Yeah, which is so difficult, I think, to understand, especially considering how this directly impacts women. And when you're thinking about what has happened over the legal landscape, you know, I was going to go there over the legal landscape in these past couple of weeks with June medical, with abortion rights, with contraceptives, there's a lot at stake around our reproductive rights. I'm just coming fresh off a conversation about how working moms have to stay home. And there was a great New York Times article that says moms are having to choose between working and parenting. And there's no middle ground. The structures are not in place for us to do both. So if you're listening, whether you have kids or not, if you think about what the legal landscape is telling us, where women are shouldering the burden, both of working versus parenting, the latest like idea of, okay, so you're limiting birth control access, and yet you're also trying to limit people's ability to have an abortion. What are you doing about childcare? There's like a big picture contradiction that I'm seeing, which is why I'm really glad we had this conversation that you're going to all listen to right now. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps ease you into uncomfortable conversations around difficult topics, including race, racism, and in this case, abortion. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today I'm so excited because we're talking to Mariko Miki, who is the managing director and general counsel of If, When, How. And I know Mariko, we go way back. We were at a large law firm together. And, you know, she is not only dynamic, but so inspirational. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Mariko Mickey is the managing director and general counsel at If When How, where she oversees the organization's programming, personnel, finances, communications, and internal systems and processes. Joining If When How in 2010, Mariko designed, launched, and directed the Reproductive Justice Fellowship Program, now in its 10th year, and ran the academic and professional training programs. Mariko has served on the advisory board of TEACH, which stands for Training in Early Abortion for Comprehensive Healthcare, and on the board of directors for Exhale Pro Voice. In law school, Mariko helped lead the Harvard Law Students for Choice chapter and served as the executive editor for the Harvard Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review which P.S. sounds amazing. Prior to working at If, When, How, Mariko practiced general litigation as an associate at Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe in San Francisco. She's a graduate of Brown University and Harvard Law School. Obviously a total slouch. <laughs> yep. Can't imagine what we're going to learn from her. <laughs> I'm so glad we had this conversation. Me too. Let's just get into it. So I am super excited today because we have Mariko Mickey here and she is amazing. So I'm going to let her introduce herself in a second. But first, Sarah and I wanted to say thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today because in our prep call for this episode, Sarah and I learned 
an amazing amount, like some jaw dropping perspective shifting moments where we were just speechless, which is tough for us because we are not speechless normally. So just to kick this off, can you please tell us a little bit about what, if, when, how, and which is the organization that you do such amazing work for does and give us a little bit of background information for our listeners. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. So I work at an organization called If, When, How, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice. We are a legal nonprofit that works to advance reproductive justice, and we work with lawyers, advocates, students, and activists to ensure that people can access reproductive health care like abortion, free from stigma and criminalization. And we're working to change the law and policy landscape to dismantle oppressive systems and to rebuild them in more just ways. Sometimes we get questions about where does our name, if, when, how come from? And it really comes from what we're trying to achieve. So that's a future where all people will have the power to decide if, when, and how to define, create, and sustain their families. Oh, I got the chills. That is so cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, you know, not lofty goals at all. I mean, I'm glad you set your sights really low. <laughs> I love that about the name. I mean, I didn't know where the name came from. So I, I love that, especially now when we are really talking about as a society dismantling systems of oppression and what that looks like. And so I love that this is part of that vision too. So can you tell us a little bit about what your specific role is within If When How? Yeah, so I'm the managing director and general counsel. I mainly oversee all of our programs, people, and policies. <laughs> so we are about 23 people strong at this point. I've been with our organization for over 10 years. And for many years, I actually directed our Reproductive Justice Fellowship Program, which is still ongoing. And that is aimed at providing entry points into this work for new attorneys who have just graduated from law school. But yeah, my work has sort of evolved over the years. But in a nutshell, I say that I'm a reproductive justice lawyer. That's awesome. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But I wanted to talk about a recent email that I got from If, When, How, because I loved it. And I get a lot of email and I'm like inbox zero type person. So I'm <laughs> always like deleting and foldering stuff. But this one, I saw the title that reproductive justice is racial justice. And I just went yes to myself. So can you explain a little bit more about that and what If When How believes on that front? Yeah, definitely. So we know that people live intersectional lives and that people are impacted differently by laws and systems based on our identities that we hold or by the circumstances of our lives. And we believe that reproductive justice can't be achieved without dismantling systems that perpetuate racial injustice. And that's not I mean, that includes everything from attitudes, right, but also practices and institutions that are really designed to uphold white supremacy. An example that I often give to folks is that we know that people who are living in poverty and who are often Black, Indigenous, or people of color, these people are living under heightened surveillance by police and by the state. They are subject to much more state intervention and even state violence um, at higher levels than white people. And their ability to access health care, to make decisions about their families, about reproduction, not just whether or not to have a child, but to even be able to have a child and to raise that child, all of these are challenged under our current system. And so for us, we're really trying to connect the dots for our lawyers 
members and students primarily that we work with between reproductive justice and racial justice to say, you can't just fight for the right for abortion. You can't just fight for the right for birth control without also trying to fight discrimination and stigma against you know, people of different kinds of identities, people with different immigration status, people with different gender presentations, sexual identities, and so on. And so we really do try to incorporate a racial justice lens into all of our work. We always try to center communities who are likely most impacted because they are already marginalized in various ways in this country. I don't know if you have any of these stats on hand. I know this is not sort of what we discussed, but when you said some of that about people being impacted with racial justice work, do you have any sort of specific information about that? I don't at my fingertips. I mean, I think some of these statistics are hard to come by. I mean, we know that, for instance, black and brown people have a higher rate of unintended pregnancy in this country. They're often less likely to have a stable source of health care. Like all of those statistics kind of stack to make these folks much more vulnerable. And so that's kind of why we are really aimed at trying to center people who may not have the kind of privilege, particularly economic privilege, to be able to circumvent, I guess, the regulations and the laws that are in place. No, that totally makes sense. And a lot of the conversations me, Sasha, and I've had on the show talk about the structural and the history between the link between color and your financial situations based on legacies of redlining. I mean, all the things. So yes, that makes sense. Well, and I love what you said about stack, too. I think that's such a good word in terms of when you're looking at all the layers that you have in marginalized communities. It's not just one statistic, but it's and one area. It's really multiple layers that sort of create that system of oppression and difficulty in terms of reproductive rights. Exactly. And so, you know, the reality is in this country abortion access looks very different for an educated, you know, upper middle class, mostly white women who live in a metropolitan area versus someone who is living in rural America and who might have other identities that layer on top. I mean, that leads me into this question. When you talk about access, I need a little background on this topic because when you mentioned this phrase, I was like, I'm sorry, what? Come again? Like, you mentioned self-managed abortions. And I think when a lot of people consider reproductive justice and accessing abortions, like you said, we think about the Planned Parenthood, the lone abortion provider, a physical doctor in a either rural or urban setting providing these services. So I didn't even understand that there was this whole field and gray zone called self-managed abortions. Can you please tell us what that means? Yes. So yeah, many people are surprised to learn that people in the United States are ending their own pregnancies at home without a doctor. Self-managed abortion simply means abortion that someone does for themselves outside of a medical setting. And actually, self-managed abortion is as old as pregnancy itself and has been practiced for centuries, likely with herbs and different kinds of physical methods and other means throughout the world. The current reality is that people often independently source the same medications. So this is in the form of pills that would be provided by a medical professional in a clinical setting. And they take these pills at home. And these abortion pills have made self-managing abortion physically safer than ever before. But the risks at this point, especially in the United States, are primarily legal. 
That's fascinating. And I want to dig into that in a second. But can we talk just about the cell? When you talk about the pills that people take, I remember when I had a miscarriage and my like OBGYN gave me like a pill to basically stick up there. And then they're like, it'll start the contractions. And like, I just had a, like a sack. The baby was gone. It was just as, and I needed to, I don't know what expel is, I guess is the word, the parts that were still inside of me. So it was a pill. Is that what you're talking about when you talk about self-managed abortions? How is that similar? And how, what do people do? I just want to get into the nitty gritty for people who really can't envision what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that it varies is sort of the quick answer. But I think one way that folks might self-manage is to order pills online. Often they are shipped from overseas. And in the United States with medication abortion, if you go to a clinic, you typically it's a two pill combo. And I'm not a doctor and I don't want to get too much into the details, but it's it's usually two kinds of pills, mifeprestone and mesoprostol. And we know that just taking mesoprostol alone is actually very effective and very safe. And that's usually what people end up taking when they self-manage. So this is, you know, obviously orally consumed rather than what you experienced. But there are protocols around this. It's very safe. There are organizations that, you know, have been helping folks do this in other countries where abortion is completely illegal. And now we're seeing it more in the United States. What are some of the myths around that? Because you said it actually is safer. Like, what are misperceptions people have about this method of abortion? I think the myths are really wrapped in the stigma, right? I think that for many, many years, people have the rallying cry, if you will, of the abortion rights movement has been, you know, we can't go back to the days of the back alley, we can't go back to the days of the coat hanger, right? And that safe abortion means a clinically based abortion with a doctor there. And so I think a myth is that somehow a self-managed abortion is always going to be a dangerous abortion. And that's just simply not true. So when it comes to reproductive justice, then, you know, you think about all the people picketing outside of a Planned Parenthood, like there's this fight at a location, like it feels like this would fall in a gray zone. I'm ordering, I don't know if you can order these pills on Amazon, but like you're ordering something online and it gets shipped to you. Do you get charged with criminal? Who are the people? Like, is there stuff that's happening on the legal side of it that are trying to stop people from being able to do this? Yes. Yes. So the legal side is complicated because there are only actually five states with laws that explicitly ban self-managed abortion. But the absence of laws that explicitly ban it has not stopped prosecutors in other states from basically becoming very creative. And so we have seen situations where prosecutors have misapplied state laws that were never intended to be used against someone for ending their own pregnancy. Some of these laws include things like drug possession, fetal harm, child abuse, concealment of a birth, abuse of a corpse, chemical endangerment laws that were intended for meth labs, all kinds of things like that. They really take a kitchen sink approach sometimes when prosecutors just decide that they want to punish someone who has been suspected of self-managing. I mean, my brain's going, how do they even know what I ordered online? And if I'm a privileged white person, am I being treated differently in the eyes of the law also versus a person of color or someone with less income or less money at their fingertips? 
Very likely, yes, because you are not under surveillance. And when you go to the doctor, your doctor isn't suspecting you of anything nefarious. So sometimes the cases that we know of where people have been criminalized and charged, it's situations where sometimes, yes, like it is around, they get caught ordering something, but more likely it's they are self-managing, they start to perhaps hemorrhage, they go to seek medical care to make sure that they're okay, and then either they tell the doctor that they have taken something, or in some cases, the doctor just suspects that they have. And of course, you know, you have to wonder, why does the doctor suspect that? And then the doctor will call the authorities. Wow. So the doctor has a critical role to play in this whole exchange. Often, yes. And again, it's like your doctor likely wouldn't call the cops on you right? Because they're not suspecting that you are trying to take illicit substances, perhaps. But for folks who are, you know, otherwise going into emergency rooms who might have layered identities, who are already marginalized in some way, they're experiencing a much more hostile healthcare environment. Wow. So then, I mean, it sounds like, is that the main issue in terms of criminalization when you talk about people like for reproductive decision making and the criminalization of it? Is this that zone that you're focused on? Or are there other issues that I'm not thinking of? This is the primary zone that we're focused on now. And it's not just folks who are self-managing for themselves. It's also their helpers. And parents have been criminalized for ordering pills and trying to help their you know, daughter. We know of situations where other people who are sort of in the chain, right, of this process have been targeted as well. And so this is kind of where our focus is at this point. But another area that we look at is youth access to abortion. And you might not know that 37 states actually have parental involvement laws. These are laws that say if you're under 18 and you need to get an abortion, that you have to either get your parents' consent or at least you have to notice them, you have to inform them. And as you can imagine, there are situations where a minor might not want to tell their parents or cannot tell their parents because they don't live with the parent or there's a whole bunch of reasons. And in those states, you know, we see that at this point, like the criminalization aspect hasn't been as much of an issue, but we can imagine where eventually like there could be laws that really criminalize folks for assisting a minor in trying to get an abortion, crossing state lines to try to get an abortion and so on. So how is If When How is an organization preparing to address issues in this realm? Yeah, so we actually take a very sort of multi-pronged approach. We obviously, you know, do sort of education. We are trying to share information. We're trying to really push back on some of the myths around self-managed abortion. We also work in litigation. We also work in policy advocacy. We're also organizing lawyers and other legal advocates to just get educated about these issues so that they can respond, you know, if and when they are called upon to do so. But it's really, we do take a multi-pronged, multifaceted approach because we know that the law is a tool, but it's not the main tool and it can't be. There has to be, you know, organizing. There has to be really a culture shift, if you will, around accepting even that self-managed abortion is a thing. It's here to stay. It's happening. We need to support folks. We need to push back on the stigma around it. 
And we know that people are going to be increasingly criminalized for trying to exercise this right that they have. So I know you just said that law is a tool. It's not the only tool. So now I'm just going to ask specifically about law in light of what you just said. But I mean, the attorney side of me like really wants to know this. And I think, you know, when we were prepping for this, you had mentioned if when how is looking into creating a legal defense fund around reproductive justice. And for me, this is so exciting because I remember the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, which was created in response to the start of the Me Too movement. And, you know, we know that this is still being fine-tuned, but we'd love to hear whatever you're able to tell us about what the role of this legal defense fund would be. Yeah, of course. So, you know, even with all the services that we provide, we know that many people who are prosecuted for self-managed abortion still desperately need one thing that we are not currently equipped to give them, and that's money. (laughs) And that's really sort of the impetus behind the idea for the legal defense fund. It would be able to provide financial assistance to people who have been charged for crimes that are related to self-managed abortion. This wouldn't just be the people who are self-managing themselves, but for their loved ones and for their community members who also help them, who sometimes also get swept up in the criminal justice system. The fund would be able to help people make bail, to be able to go home for their families, to be able to attend their jobs. We'd be able to pay for attorneys you know, and for people who can't just get pro bono representation, we'd actually be able to pay for attorney's fees. We'd also hope to be able to pay for key expert witnesses and consulting attorneys with expertise, people who could really make a difference in the outcome of a case. And we really imagine that the Legal Defense Fund would be available to kind of all people who are in these concentric circles that we identified, right? So, The primary focus being people who end their own pregnancies, but then their loved ones and people who help them, maybe even activists who are fighting for the rights of people to self-manage abortion and might be, you know, getting in trouble by publishing certain things on their website or doing other kinds of activism. And we really think that this is a need that it will serve, I think, a critical gap that so far we have not been able to quite fill with all of our different advocacy and with our repro legal helpline, which is, you know, would kind of serve as a intake process, I guess, and then would also be able to then funnel folks towards a legal defense fund if that's what they need. That's awesome. And I think we're going to talk about the helpline a little bit later. But, you know, I've never heard of a legal defense fund in the reproductive justice arena. So I'm super excited to hear about if, when, how doing this, because also thinking back to my law school education, I didn't learn anything really about reproductive justice in law school. So can you talk a little bit about that? I know you had some involvement or you were working in training and the fellowship for a while, but is this something that lawyers are being trained on now? Is this a growing trend or is this part of its many layers of education? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, if when how has evolved over the years, and when we started, we were called law students for choice, and then we were called law students for reproductive justice. And so for the first, you know, iteration of the organization, the focus was really on law students and the legal curriculum. And for many years, as part of my job, I was working with students hand in hand to try to get reproductive rights and justice courses taught on law schools. Because I remember, I think in around 2003, 
2023, it was less than one in five law schools offered any courses on this, which is really shocking because this is such an important, critical part of our, I think, social discourse, right? And when people think about, like, what are critical rights and what are the main legal cases, right? I mean, you touch on Roe v. Wade for a split second in your constitutional law class, but that's really often the only engagement that many, many law students have. So over the years, if when Howe has been around for over 15 years or so, we have seen a, a remarkable shift and we've had a lot of success in supporting students to lobby for these classes on their campus. We partnered with other legal academics to put out the first casebook on reproductive rights and justice several years ago. That was a real game changer for us. And I think at this point, it's still low, but I think it is about one in four law schools actually offer courses in this so that students can engage with these issues in a more sustained way. I think that's amazing because I think even to get from one in five to one in four, a fairly short amount of time is huge because you're still getting the information out there to law students who may be that may shift the entire their entire legal career, which is, you know, you have those few moments in law school where something really resonates with you. So I think that's amazing. And well, I was going to say not to totally switch gears, but basically to totally switch gears, although still stay on the legal front. I was like, there's no smooth way to transition that one. We've seen in, you know, these past couple of weeks, the Supreme Court has come down with some very big decisions around reproductive rights. Today, as we're recording related to contraception, which I can already see Sarah, like we talked about this before our call and we have thoughts. <laughs> We have lots of thought. But also last week with June Medical, which was a case that we had discussed on the podcast earlier this year and, you know, was one that we were really waiting for because considering the composition of the court and what that case meant in terms of abortion rights and the legality and the future of where we could head, it was so huge. And so while I know Chief Justice Roberts you know, wrote his opinion and had some specific view is ish. And, you know, I have my own thoughts about that <laughs> and his position. We're really curious to hear what you thought about June Medical and what that means for what this landscape looks like in reproductive justice. And if I could just add, if we can do this in non-lawyer talk, so <laughs> that <laughs> listeners who aren't lawyers can understand first what the case was about as a refresher and then sort of layman conversation, please be great. Sure, I'll try my best. I was just telling my husband this, so maybe this will be <laughs> a good uh, warm up. So the June medical case was around what we call trap laws. These are targeted regulations of abortion providers. And specifically, it was an admitting privilege regulation in the state of Louisiana. This is where doctors who provide abortions have to enter into some kind of an agreement with a local hospital to be able to admit any patients there. So this regulation really doesn't have any sort of actual merit. It doesn't enhance the safety or the health of patients. And more than that, it's they're incredibly onerous. Doctors are unable to get these privileges. They're unable to conform to the law. And we find that regulations like these often are just intended to shut down clinics. And so this almost exact same law that was actually reviewed by the court four years ago in the whole women's health decision 
that law was in Texas. And the court said that that law was unconstitutional because it did create an undue burden for people who are trying to seek abortion care. And so the court struck it down four years ago in Whole Women's Health. And then it came back again, this time in June Medical. And so many of us saw this as a very bad sign that, you know, this felt like settled law to us. Why was the Supreme Court even considering this case again? It was only four years ago. And so this was a better outcome than we had hoped for, honestly. We weren't necessarily thinking that Roberts would join on the majority. And he did issue his own opinion. So it was a plurality. I think it doesn't mean good things going forward, unfortunately. I think Roberts was doing something very tricky where he was paying deference to the precedent that Whole Women's Health set four years ago, and but also making it very clear that he disagreed with that decision and that analysis. And I think what it means going forward is, is that it's a different kind of test that the court will apply to regulations. And I think Roberts signaled very clearly in his plurality opinion that he is essentially open to other kinds of regulations, just not this one. <laughs> so Roe v. Wade is still hanging. Like we're not the future of women's rights to choose what happens to our bodies is still not in the clear, not by a long shot. And I, I'm not alone in thinking this. I think a lot of reproductive justice folks feel that Roe v. Wade is not likely to be sort of overturned explicitly. Like we're not going to see a decision that says like Roe v. Wade is dead. You know, it's more likely that it'll be a death by a thousand small regulations that just as we have seen over like the past decades, you know, they're just layer upon layer upon layer of these regulations that make it harder and harder for doctors to perform abortions, for clinics to keep their doors open, for patients to access it, right? Like things like waiting periods, right? You have to go in for one appointment, then you have to wait a certain amount of time and come back. I mean, that is so onerous. I mean, especially if there's only one abortion clinic in your state, you've driven four hours to get there, and then you have to come back in 72 hours for another appointment to actually be able to get your abortion. You know, and I think that it's going to be a hollowing out more than an overturning. And so, and I think there's real political reasons for that, because I think it's harder to mobilize the public. It's harder for the public to understand what it means when we say that, well, Roe v. Wade is still on the books. And so the right still exists in theory, but basically the right doesn't exist in practice. It's very hard to get people, you know, riled up around that and to really get out in the streets and to protest. So I think that is the strategy. I think that is the strategy for anti-abortion advocates. I think that's been their strategy for many, many years. And I think what Roberts is doing is it's sort of a very temporary reprieve at this point. It maintained the status quo, but I think it definitely opened the door to considering all kinds of other regulations down the road. Was that lay person enough? That was amazing. Like I have all of these like, wow, okay. So, but what I'm excited about is that's what you're here on the legal side of things to help, right? Like that's what If When How is doing. And I'm just like, I'm so glad you're here because we're trying. And we did file an amicus brief in the June medical case. And our brief really was pretty different, right? Because for us, we don't work with abortion clinics. And so our interest in this case was a little bit different. But our brief really focused on 
abortion stigma and how regulations like these perpetuate this deep stigma attached to people who provide abortion care and for people who are trying to access it. And we know that this kind of aura of illegality that surrounds abortion leads to a higher risk of criminalization for certain communities and that it leads to worse outcomes overall. That's such a good point. I mean, I can't tell the number of times Misash and I've been talking about this idea of abortion. Do we want to interview someone who's had it? But you Google people who've gone public with their experience having abortion and they are attacked. You know, it's a big thing to reveal. And like you said, the stigma around it and the shame that people are forced to feel because of all of these things that are going on. I mean, I think that's really spot on and true. And then you can also imagine because of that kind of stigma, maybe that would entice someone to want to self-manage, right? Rather than try to brave going to a clinic, even if there was a clinic they could get to. You know, and I think one myth, just going back to the earlier conversation about self-managed abortion is, I think it's a myth that it's always done out of desperation. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think real people have real reasons for why they want to self-manage. And I don't think it's always because they couldn't, you know, go to a clinic. I think that heightens it. And certainly we've seen an uptick on our repro legal helpline during COVID for people, you know, who have questions around self-managed abortion. But I think there are all kinds of reasons why people would prefer to self-manage in the safety of their home and with their loved ones. I mean, you just threw it out there right there. Like, that's a great resource, the repro legal helpline. Can you tell us a little bit about that resource and then other resources that listeners can share with people who might need them? Yeah. So our helpline is staffed by advocates and attorneys. We have language interpreters and we're able to provide legal information and advice and make referrals to our litigation team, as well as outside of attorneys, if appropriate. We basically are able to provide all kinds of information for people who are worried about the threat of criminalization. And in those cases, for people who are super cautious, I mean, is there any repercussion, like fear that people should have? Or is that information they share on the Repro Legal Helpline and the conversations they have with lawyers protected? Yes, it's confidential. It's protected. You know, a lot of times it really kind of depends on what is the situation and what kind of information that person is seeking. Sometimes we refer folks out to other resources. Like if someone calls and their questions are primarily medical in nature, then we're not going to answer that. We're going to refer out to some of our allies. But if we do provide legal advice, then absolutely it's confidential, it's privileged, it's protected. That's fantastic. And so that's a great resource for people who want to share that you're out there with their friends or families or loved ones. How else can, I mean, as an organization, you support lawyers and the reproductive justice side of things. But for the people who are not lawyers, how can like the average person get involved in either supporting your work or other causes that are related to your work? Yeah, thanks for asking. So we have an incredible communications team who have done so much for our social media and our social media. I love it because it doesn't just sort of uplift our work, but it really amplifies the great work that other allied organizations are doing on reproductive justice and racial justice too. So I definitely recommend that people follow us on social media to just learn about all the kind of things that are happening right now, as well as any opportunities to get involved. We do have a petition that 
is aimed at local, state, and national leaders and policymakers, calling on them to decriminalize self-managed abortion. And that's a petition that any person can sign. I think we also have an open letter that is targeted towards attorneys. And I think we have about like seven or 800 lawyers who have signed on to that at this point. Donating to our organization is always a great way to support the work. And you know, certainly as we're in the process of building the Legal Defense Fund, we're still taking donations and grants from funders to build that work. And then, yeah, I think it's just about spreading the word. I mean, everyone knows a lawyer. <laughs> so, you know, telling your lawyer friends to check us out and to join our, we have a new network called the Reproductive Justice Lawyers Network, where we're really trying to reach the lawyers maybe who didn't have a chance to study this in law school or who are just coming to learning, you know, these issues and this work. And we're developing a whole ladder of engagement for these folks to really you know, get educated on what are the issues and then thinking about how can they engage. And so that might be everything from, you know, co-authoring briefs to signing on different petitions to even direct representation down the road, particularly for folks who have, you know, criminal defense backgrounds, right? A lot of them don't necessarily know about these issues, but we would love to be able to tell them about it and to kind of get them into our network so that when they are called upon, they'll be ready. I really love that because I'm just picturing someone who got pregnant, has had to make the difficult choice, because let's be honest, making the choice to have an abortion is never one that people are like carelessly making. I mean, it's a carefully considered difficult choice. Your body's surging with hormones already. Say you do the self-managed abortion route and you're then going through all the hormones of post-pregnancy because all of that still affects you. And then you get slammed with criminal charges. You're thrown in jail. Like, I really appreciate that you're here because women who are going through this are in really vulnerable spots in so many reasons. And so I love that you are out here doing this work to support people in tough spots. Thank you. Yeah. And I think, you know, we saw that there was a gap and we have tried to respond to it. And that's really kind of how we do our work. We really center the needs of the communities. We really try to think about what is really needed on the ground and how we can really best serve these communities as lawyers and to really be able to marshal like our privilege and our power in service of communities that are much more powerless and much more marginalized. And I think that it is sort of innovative even within the kind of repro rights movement. The strategy that we are employing is pretty different from the ones that have been employed over the past several decades, right? The strategy was really focusing on the courts and trying to win cases in court. And I think that strategy is still super important, but it also has to be this kind of like case by case, like coming to the support of people who are criminalized in each and every individual instance. Because otherwise, you know, these people oftentimes are yeah, there is no recourse for them. And even for folks who are charged, and then ultimately, most courts have sided with us, or I guess, you know, to have determined that the charges don't necessarily stick, or people basically, well, let me back up and just say that in many instances, even when courts were reviewing prosecutions, generally have sided with the people who have ended their own pregnancies, even when that happens, these people, their lives have been turned upside down. You know, they have been arrested, their mugshots are shared, their home addresses, they make the news, they can't find work. Like, there are just ripple effects 
And that's because of the stigma. And so for us, it's not really even about like, it's almost too late, even once someone has been arrested, we're trying to like kind of get ahead of things a little bit. And that's why the legal helpline, I think, is so important, because someone can call us even if, you know, they're contemplating self-managing or if they have and they're worried about what to do. I love it. I have so many other things I feel like I could ask. But, you know, you mentioned following you on social media. Where can our listeners find If When How? Yeah, so we are on all the regular ones. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I think those are it. Our website has a lot of great resources. The Repro Legal Helpline is its own website that folks can go to. I believe it's just reprolegalhelpline.org. And then once we are ready to launch the Legal Defense Fund down the road, we'll be you know, doing more sort of publicity around that. But that's sort of in the works at this point. Let us know when that launches. We'll be sure to link to all of these places on our show notes. And then when the fund comes out, we will absolutely be sharing that to all of our listeners as well. So just keep us posted. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you so much, Mariko. Like, I can't say how much I've learned really in this short conversation, I think. And so I would also encourage our listeners to sign up for your newsletters because I've learned a lot through the newsletters as well. So, you know, I can't wait to keep following what you and what If When How is doing, especially considering everything that's been coming out legally in recent days. So I guess the doorbell is a sign that we're going. (laughs) I'm going to stop recording. Thank you. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Woman Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 